Welcome back, everybody, to the Reflex Blue Show. I'm your host, Donovan Beery, recording from the How Design Live conference. And we have with us with us uh, one of the attendees, Nikita Prokhorov. And I know I got that half wrong. Uh, no, you actually got it full right, so well okay. done. I will try not to repeat it again. And you said, you said it's actually a Russian name. You're, you're from, are you from Russia? Born and raised uh, for the first 10 years of my life and the next 27 and hopefully more in the United States. And you're in your New York City. New York City. Independent designer and you are known for Amagrams. Yep, I'm known for Amagrams for better or for worse. And I, I, started, I started teaching up again and actually it was, it was the last class, so just Thursday. We, one, of the, one of the assignments that they set up is, is all the students have to report on, you know, find a, find a graphic design article or something design related. And in the most recent issue of How Magazine, my student pulled it open and I was like, Nikita! <laughs> and shockingly enough, you wrote, you wrote an article on Amagrams. Very well done, by the way. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. What is it that... And, and oh, for those, for those who don't know, an Amagram is a word that can be read when right side up and then you flip it and it's... And it actually can be the same word or different words when you flip it. Yep. There's different kinds of amagrams. There's the most common rotational one where you turn the word 180 degrees and it's the same word. There's a symbiotogram. It's an unofficial name, but based on the word symbiote. So when you turn it upside down, it's a different word. You can have reflective amagrams, which you put it next to a mirror. It's read differently. You can have 90-degree rotational amagrams, which you only turn 90 degrees to read another word. There's, there's so many variations, and it evolves, it just evolves constantly. So these are all ambergrams, but then there are different words inside of ambergrams, so of what it could be. Yep. What, what, what made you fascinated with this? Like what brought you into say like, hey, this is what I want to dedicate my spare time to, is doing ambergrams? Well, I've always been drawn to art. It makes you go back and take a second or a third look. Work like M.C. Escher, Renee Magritte, most surrealists in general. And when I first read the book Angels and Demons by Dan Brown, Ambergrams were an integral part of the plot. So I started reading the book. I got to page, I don't know, 15, 20, and there was a first ambergram, and I stopped reading the book because I couldn't believe that something like this exists. Yeah. So I'm sitting there in Barnes & Noble, or I think it was Borders, and turning the book upside down, trying to figure out how to do this. I already have a sketch pad and pencils out, trying to sketch out my first ambergram, which was so ridiculously awful. We'll probably never see the light of day. But at the end, I actually never finished the book before I actually drew my first ambergram. And after I drew it, then I finished the book and then I looked at the other ambergrams in the plot and they were just fantastic. So that's how I got involved in them. And it is one of those things where I, I do know they made a, a resurgence, like they started making back into the pop culture because they were in a, in a heavily publicized book. And, and it was even in the movie poster and such for it. They're also very, ambergrams are very popular in the tattoo culture. There's certain black letter gothic style that is very popular. I don't know if it's because it's easier to read or it's more ambiguous and that makes it easier to perceive or understand or just because it's easier to tattoo, but it's, uh, it's one of the most common trends. Cool. It looks very cool and if I was ever to get a tattoo, it would be my own ambergram and I don't know if it would be black letter or gothic, but it would be some kind of ambergram that I designed, but I haven't gotten to that point yet. And, and you've even written a book on ambergrams too, if I recall right. Yep, um, it was a book, and I didn't so much write the whole thing. Uh, I mean, I obviously wrote an introduction, wrote parts of some of the section, the tips and tricks, but it's not just a book that I wrote. It's a book of uh, case studies and ambergrams. There's a showcase of ambergrams. There's a, a panel of judges, which two of them are the pioneers of ambergrams, John Langdon and Scott Kim. There's uh, Robert Petrick, who is also, he's also one of the pioneers, uh, and they all 
it kind of started at Ambergams, the whole movement, if you will, back in the late 70s. And Robert, uh, John Langdon and uh, Scott Kim, they worked at Ambergams independently from the East Coast and the West Coast. And then they got together and so they realized, oh yeah, we're working on the same, same idea. We just called it different names. So Scott Kim called it Inversions, and he still calls them that. And John Langdon and everybody else calls them Ambergrams. So there's kind of a dual, dual name for it, which is ironic because Ambergrams are very dual natured. So. No, that makes sense. In, in your in your company, where do people go to find out more about about your company and your work before we before we talking a bit further here? Well, my company is essentially you know sitting right in front of you. It's me. Since I'm a freelancer, I work out of you know, coffee shops, my apartment. You know, I freelance on site for companies. Um, you can go to either nikitaprokhorov.com, and I'll spell that for you. It's N I K I T A P R O K H O R O V dot com, or if you go to ambergrammas.com, which is the website for all my ambergrams, it's let me see if I can remember how to spell this. It's uh, A-M-B-I-G-R-A-M-M-I-S-T.com. And that features all my Ambergram work. The other website is more traditional design portfolio. This is nothing but Ambergrams. What is it that makes you continue to want to do, do this work? Because this is a specialized market. Even though, even though it is, there is like a niche to it, it's very specialized. What is it that makes you continue to, to stay in the Ambergram world? Well, it's, it's fun. It's when you try to when you sit down and try to solve an ambergram, you have the solution, but you don't know how to get to it. So the whole fun of the process trying to because the out. solution is you have the word or words. Yeah, you need you know that you need to make this word read the same way upside down, but figuring out how that's a, that's a challenge. And I guess it's the same. It's a bit different from traditional design work. Let's say creating a logo because you don't know which way your exploration, your brainstorming, your conceptual stage can take you. In ambergram design, I mean, the style is not determined yet, but you know the end result. So you kind of have a puzzle, and you, you kind of have a puzzle, you just need to figure out the puzzle pieces. That's fantastic. We'll be right back with Nikita. Now, now before we continue here, you, you actually do other design work as well. This isn't the only thing that you work on. Yes, I actually have a traditional, like I said, I have a traditional design portfolio. I would love to work on a logo, custom typography, hand lettering, you know, branding, uh, packaging. So I do some more, a lot of the more traditional design, uh, design projects uh, when I get a chance to. And I would assume that most people who work in ambergrams probably are good at hand lettering. Like I assume it's a skill that translates back and forth. If you can do ambergrams, you can probably do lettering. You know, it's, it's funny because when I started getting into the ambergram field, if you will, if you can even call it a field, and I started getting to know the artists, two of the guys I know, they're engineers and they do amazing ambergrams. One uh, guy that I know, he works at the American Museum of Natural History, he works in archaeology, he's a curator there, and he creates ambergrams in his spare time. And he's not, a, you know, he's not a graphic designer, but he's a very creative person, which enables him to do it. And for me, ambergrams overlap. I started learning about custom, you know, custom lettering, hand lettering, and ambergrams together, so to speak. I didn't get into custom lettering until a few years after graduate school, and I realized that I had this epiphany. Hey, you can draw your own letters. You don't just have to modify existing typefaces. <laughs> it was like this epiphany, this light bulb went off over my head. So, and at the same time, I realized that ambergrams exist, so I kind of learned about the two. It definitely helps if you have some experience about, you know, with custom, uh, with hand lettering, because type Ambergrams are just type manipulations. I mean, at the core of it, you still have to follow the core principles of typography, about typeface design, about consistency in the typeface. It's just a whole different level of uh, manipulation. 
Yeah, it still has to look like a letter A. It just has to be able to be flipped around and look like a letter P. Yeah, that's essentially it. And, and you still have to follow all the traditional rules. You have to watch the weights of the typefaces, the contrast in thicks and thins. Yeah, that's why it's a um, general recommendation. You never use an existing typeface to create an ambergram because you're already kind of locked into a set of constraints. It's better to start really raw and really out there and then slowly narrow down your options and figure out what's the best until you, know, you chipped away all the necessary items. Do you normally start with like the easiest parts or do you start with the difficult part? Like, like are there certain letters that just don't flip well? Yeah, I haven't found a good way to turn a Z into an O upside down, and I don't think that's ever going to work. Zs do not turn into Os. No, they do not turn into Os, and Ys don't turn into As either. So well, no, why can Y can actually turn into an A, but Zs definitely don't turn into Os. So doing an ambigram for the word zoo is like a nightmare. Um, it's not a nightmare because if there's a will, there's a way, and when you can do a traditional approach where you can make turn it one letter upside down and make it turn into another letter, you get creative. And it's all about context as well, because you know, obviously, like in regular typography, the way you perceive letters, it's and the way you read the word and understand the word, it depends on the surrounding elements. You know, the space around the letters, the letters next to them, and if you take certain parts of the neighboring letter into account, maybe you can make that Z O work. Where if it's just independent letters, you couldn't do it. What what's the what's the what was the first time you ran into a problem that you solved with an amogram? where you're like, hey, I didn't think this was possible. Is there certain letters that, that just clicked, just took a while? Or, or how do you, is this, is it, does this involve just a lot of sketching or is there a lot more research involved? You know, just like any design project when you're trying to figure out a solution, trying to come up with a concept, it's all research and exploration and sketching. You know, there's some projects, some ambigrams I've done where I go back, back to them six months later. I couldn't make it work before I go back to it six months later because something clicked in my mind and I saw a combination of traditional letters or I was working a different ambigram and saw a potential approach and I go back and it works. Some ambigrams I worked on and I've abandoned them because they just don't work. And I have probably you know, four or five hundred of those somewhere tucked away in sketchbooks all over my apartment. So the challenge with ambigrams is knowing when to step away and say, this doesn't work because it, not every word can turn into ambergram and not every word can turn into a good ambergram which is very important and so if somebody comes up and they say we got a logo we want to make into an ambergram is it one of those if it doesn't work it doesn't work it's absolutely one of those scenarios and more so when people come to me when clients come to me potential clients and ask me hey, I have this company I want to make my company logo an ambergram I usually try to dissuade them from that because um, a company logo it has to be perceived and understood 100% by everyone across the board. If you're selling laundry detergent and your logo looks like a letter from the industrial era, you don't get a, you don't get that softness of comfort level across. Sure. So, say with an ambergram, uh, it's not just identifiable logo for a company; it uh, has to be read and perceived 100%. And it's very hard to do with an ambergram, especially a good ambergram. So most of the time when somebody asks for a logo for their company as an ambergram, I try to dissuade them from that unless I look at the name and I, it's a short name and I can see that it's, it has potential and it will be a good ambergram. Like the company Xpedex, uh, spelled X-P-E-D-X, that's almost a natural ambergram and the company merged with another one a few years ago, but their logo is a perfect example of an ambergram that's easily read understood across the board. You look at it, there's no mistaking what it is. Yeah, and, and I can even... With those letters, I'm like, yeah, I could I could flip a P into a D pretty quick. Yeah. I could probably do that with an existing font typeface. 
Yeah, and that's, like I said, there's some combinations that are just natural, like you flip a B upside down, lowercase b, it becomes a Q. You know, if it's not exactly a Q, you do some slight tweaking to the letter, and that's where the traditional typography knowledge comes into play. But some hammergrams, like I said, some letter combinations just lend themselves towards working, and some just don't work no matter how, for how long you try to make them work. Now, have you done the other where you're doing a logo for somebody, and you said this would make a great hammergram, and convince them of it? <laughs> um, like, has that ever happened, or, or are you still waiting for that one? It's happened, but it mostly happens internally on my sketchbook and on my table at home. If I see a logo that works in Ambergram, I try not to push in that direction because it opens up a whole set of potential pitfalls. So if we're working a traditional logo and I have an icon and a word mark solution, I usually just leave it at that. But, sometimes, but sometimes I just share it with a client after just for the heck of it, just to... If they want to use it as a promotional item, like a sticker, embroidery, or in a cup, sometimes I share with them and they love it. Sometimes they say it's great, but it's it's too out there, too far out there, which is fine. It's a response I get from quite a few clients about Amberham, and that's completely acceptable. Or I think it makes them look like the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> that that was the one ambergram in, in the Angels and Demons, right? The Illuminati. Yep. That was the one of the main ambergrams that uh, there was represented the secret society. And some people love that dark, mysterious uh, feeling, and some people don't want it. So just I just let them have their peace of mind. Sure, sure. All right. Well, we're going to be right back with Nikita. So you're in. So you're in New York right now, Nikita. Yes, have you been back to Russia? You, you said you left when you were 10? Um, yes, I left in 89 and I haven't been back since uh, because most of them, we have a very small family. Um, my mom, it was my mom, my grandma, my grandpa, and they moved over here within the span of two years. So by now, yeah, when you were ten, you weren't in on the decision making; you were just taken with with them. Like, yeah, I was we're pretty moving, and you're like, okay, <laughs> it wasn't like a, you know, I'm going to stay here. I'm in like fifth grade. I'll just I'll just hang out with my buds. Yeah, I'm going to stay here and work at the mines and have a bottle of vodka every day. No, uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't get a chance to stay. I was pretty much went where I was told. So my mom and I moved here in '89. Uh, then my grandparents moved uh, two years later, '91. And that was pretty much the whole family. There's some cousins that are spread out all over the world. My uh, grandfather had a twin brother, and his granddaughter lives in Canada. We touch base once in a while. Very, very cool person. And that's about it. We have a tiny family. So. Well, you were old enough to remember, obviously, living there. Like, like you probably have a lot of memories from, from, the, from the area. You know, does, does any of that help with like your design? Does it? Do you think back about how things visual? Because I know, like, when we travel, it help. You know, having different visual things to play off of and different experiences really kind of can build in what we do now. Does, 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 does having that experience of growing up in Russia affect what you do as a designer? Oh, it's funny you say that because back when I was 10 and I had to move here, you know, I was so preoccupied with you know, assimilating to the culture, learning the language, which was difficult even though I went to English teaching school in Russia. I think our teacher didn't know more than 500 words. So when I moved well, here, well, that's that's 200 more than in any Dr. Seuss book. So I think you're I think you're set. Well, I knew how to say my <laughs> I knew how to say my name is Nikita and where's the bathroom? Even though it was a horrible English language, horrible accent that got me through the first 15 years of my life or so. And uh, then when I was old enough and I started, you know, reading back about Russian culture, and thankfully my grandparents and my mom they very artistic, very educated people. They've taken me to a lot of Russian musicals, Russian museums. So I had that base. 
And when I started growing up, I got interested in graphic design. I was able to tap into that culture and those roots and learn about Russian art, Russian propaganda, which influenced my design for quite a long time. Not just the traditional red and green black color palette, but also... Oh, but, but, we lo but we love Russian constructivism. Oh, we love propaganda, it's Russian so constructivism. Good. Absolutely. You, you need, what, a, type, a bold industrial typeface, uh, red and black, and you're done. Sometimes, sometimes you move it to kind of an orangish. A yellow. I'm sorry, I forgot the yellow. Yeah, sometimes, and, and you can, and, and then it's like, and then you're, and then you're done for another year. And a hammer and sickle. Throw that in there. A bottle of vodka. Maybe an illustration of a bear with a furry rushanka, which is a traditional Russian hat, and you're done. Now you're limiting your audience a little bit. You can't really sell that to IBM as well, but. But, you know, but yeah, that's the idea. But if you embroider the IBM logo on the hat and the bear has a maybe an IBM tattoo on the paw, that's perfect. Bring it right back. I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. No, but I love, I love my Russian roots, Russian culture, now that I'm able to explore it further. Because, like I said, when I moved here and I was 10, I was too busy acclimating to completely different culture. And, of course, being Russian in an American society, I got... Tons of flack for being Russian accents. So the nicknames came that, into play. That was that was that hilarious. Was, that was the era where where uh, that culture would be heavily stereotyped here in America. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, having moved here at the time, I got the brunt of it. For example, uh, my junior in high school, our history teacher, the last day before spring break, he said, "We're going to have a movie day," and we were all very excited with the movie will be. He brought in Red Dawn, and of course, uh, I didn't I didn't hear about that for the rest of the end of that until yeah. the rest of the year. It was awful. Yeah, you got Red Dawn, you got Rocky Four. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And what really gets to me, uh, when you look up on the Russian stereotype in movies, it's always about six foot three, six foot four, blonde hair, blue eyes, big muscles, and then I'm five foot eight, brunette. And um, I turned to my mom and dad and said, Mom, Dad, what happened? Why didn't you give me the stereotypical look and feel? I'm like, all right, not our fault. <laughs> you work with what Why? you've been given. Why don't I look like Dolph Lundgren? Like, I, can, I can do the accent. I can, I can do the accent, but I like the height, the muscles, and the kickboxing skills, and the punching power. But yeah. I got the accent down. That's all that it needs to get me through a day sometimes. Yeah. And, and Russia is a very large country. It's, yeah. not, it's not like small. It's, it's very big. So, so what, what, part, what part of Russia were you from? Not, did you actually come from? Well, I was born and raised in Moscow, so right in the, in the heart of the motherland, as they would say. Okay. Just 10 years there. And I remember, I remember the area where we lived really well. And when, you know, when I close my eyes, I can picture the playground, I can picture the apartment building. And my grandparents lived in the third floor, my mom and step, or my dad and my mom and I, they, we lived in the first floor. So it was very integrated, you know, this is a time where I could, when I was six years old, they could give me some money and send me to the corner store for groceries, like bread and milk, and I could just walk out there and do it. I don't think you can do that anymore in that neighborhood. Not because it's gotten bad, but because it's changed so much. Sure. And, and that's great. I mean, it's great when, when you have these experiences, and it's great for design when we have people in the profession that have all these experiences, because we talked talk on the show before that it's that all cultures help, because you're going to come up with different solutions just by, just by living there, even though you're, you're now obviously been here for way longer than you were there, yeah. but you never, you never forget your first few years. No, you don't. And, um, actually, if you're interested in design-related story that overlaps some Russian roots and sort of a negative part of it, I can quickly sure, elaborate. Sure, Because not, not, in design, not all things are positive, not all things are negative. Absolutely. Most things are actually in between. Yeah, some of there's a purgatory between positive and yeah. negative. Um, so when I was in grad school and I actually started really getting passionate about design, started developing a logo for myself, my first thought was, okay, let me use a red star. Uh, it's associated with Russian culture, Russian roots. So I took a red star, I put my name next to it, and I think it was Future Bold, and I was happy. Sure. Showed that logo to my mom and my grandma, and the excrement hit the proverbial fan. 
Oh. And I asked him, I asked him, well, what, what, what is the problem? Why are you reacting like this? And I, it didn't dawn on me that I could be wrong or I, they would be right. I just thought that my design was perfect and there's no ifs or buts about it. Well, uh, then they started to give me a little history lesson about Russian, uh, the Russian rulers and Russian politics back then. They gave me a little history of our family and how many family members actually suffered in Russian concentration camps and how some of them were killed. And they basically enlightened me with the fact that the little red star, which is so popular, and you know Heineken, Macy's, you know countless other companies use it. Right. It's associated actually with a very bloody regime that killed, you know, thousands and thousands of not just intelligent people, but smart people, bright people, people that would have made a huge difference had they survived. Not just not even counting just our family members, you know, in general. So then I realized that hey, that's actually probably not a good symbol to associate yourself with. <laughs> So then I designed a new logo for myself, and my professor at the time, Scott Boylston, in grad school, he encouraged me to write an article about it. So I did some more history research. I wrote an article, and it was actually featured in How Magazine in 2006 or 2000 from a promotional issue. So I designed my new logo, and then, of course, someone said, hey, it looks like Milton Glaser's logo. So I looked it up, and, of course, it looked very much like Milton Glaser's <laughs> logo. So I went, I went from a rock to a hard place. Well, I mean, if, if you're going to be caught looking like someone, your mom probably wouldn't care if you copied Milton Glaser, but... She does care if you, you copied. She does care if I associated my uh, design work and myself having been raised in Russia with uh, something very negative out of the country's history. And I actually, it was a great learning process and this is one of the great examples for design all across the board. You're trying to represent a culture or certain type of people with your design or you're trying to appeal to certain type of people. Learn a little bit about the culture. Take the time to explore and read. Ask someone who's part of their culture. You know, if you're designing for a market that's located in Asia, talk to someone, do some research, figure out what's in terms of color, in terms of typefaces, because there's color opposites in our culture versus uh, you know, in Asia, for example. You know, the whole black and white thing. And you know, in this, in our culture, white is the color of happiness, purity, and innocence. Black is dark color, it symbolizes death and negativity. Well, in our culture, it's backwards. So, bottom line, when you're designing for a different culture, learn about the aspects of the culture before you dive into it head first. Yeah, if you would have done a green star, they wouldn't have cared until you saw someone who's red, green, colorblind, and then they'd be all mad and you'd be like, what, what? And then I would be out of business completely, yes, absolutely. Nobody would know what I do. Now, you did do the right thing. You showed it to your, your mom, who obviously knew more about the culture before you threw it out everywhere. So, so in a way, you kind of... And which reminds me, I think one of the things you mentioned in your Ambergram article that was in the most recent Howl magazine was you said to show your stuff to multiple people. Yep. And it was, I assume it's not so that they'll tell you that your Ambergram reminds them of death. I assume <laughs> it's so they can tell you, once you get into Ambergram so much, I assume like you can read a lot more convoluted things that barely even look like letter forms because you get so into it. And I assume you're doing that so that can, can the regular person make out what these letters are. Oh, absolutely. In any design process, when we get too close with a project and we're involved with it constantly, we kind of we tend to lose perspective. And when I when I look at even traditional some of my traditional design work, and I think it's really awful, or I think it's really great, which is not a good mindset either. I show it to some people and they, some fellow designers, and they either take me back down to earth, chop my ego down to size, or they tell me it's actually pretty good, where I think it's absolute garbage. So it helps to get a different perspective when you get too close to a project, you know, regardless whether it's an ambergram or poster or book design, because sometimes you lose, you lose that objectivity if you're too close and you're involved in it for a long period of time. 
No, that's wonderful. Well, Nikita, we really thank you for your time. And, oh, thank you. It's been and, my enjoy pleasure. Enjoy the Howe Conference and, and, and seeing everybody here. It's great, to, it's great to finally actually meet you. I know. For things. a couple of years, it's great to meet face-to-face and chat informally and formally. And you've been very active in the Howies group. So, like, you, it seems like you know a lot of people at Howe, but, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen you at Howe in, since I've been here. Well, I've... I've I'm very active online in the How group and uh, on the forum back then when it was a good, really good forum. Um, I haven't been able to get to too many conferences, and when I do, it's with usually three or four years in between. It feels like so I go to one conference and I miss the excitement, I go to another conference and I miss some more excitement in a few years. So, But it's, it's nice to catch up and put a face to the name and chat and get to know you a little bit. And I assume that, that you're, you're active on the forums or the Howie boards or now the group that they have because being a, a solo designer, which, which I basically am as well. It's your way to stay connected and to with the community. Yeah, it's the, if I can think of one drawback to being a solo designer is the fact you don't get that in-office environment or in-company, in-house feel. You don't get to socialize as much. You don't get. You can't just turn around, and tap your colleague on the shoulder, and say, "Hey, what do you think of this?" So it helps to stay active because some of the connections you you make are. It's you know, for decades and decades to come. And some uh, folks I've met, I've known them for 10 plus years, and ironically, some of them I've known for 10 years before I even met them face to face. So it's like you cultivate a friendship, and then finally you meet to, you meet in person, and you just pick up where you left off online. So that's, that's the beauty of it. You still make those connections, whether it's in person or online. And for those of you who actually pay attention show to show, Bill Gardner is not actually on this episode. He will be on the next one. So we will nice. also ask Nikita, do you have any question for Bill? of Logo Lounge that we can ask him just on anything whatsoever. Yeah, how do you consistently put out such fantastic work? Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> I don't know if I can ask him that. I don't know if I can ask him that one. Come on. We, we, Bill's been on the show before. We can't, we can't give him that big of a softball. You got anything else? All right. Well, uh, put me on the spot off the top of my head. What is the worst and the best submission you've ever received? You don't have to give names, just general description. Sounds great. That, that I'll ask him. All right, fantastic. Thanks, Nikita. Thanks. The Reflex Blue Show with Donovan Beery is hosted at 36point.com. Music by Dustlab. Find out more at myspace.com slash dustlab.